Hey, everybody, it's Gene Marks again. Thank you very much for coming back and joining me on another episode of BizBooks. Whether you're listening or watching us on YouTube, I'm really happy to have you here. I'm also very happy to have Karen Hurt and David Dye here, who are both the co-authors of Courageous Cultures, How to Build Teams of Micro-Innovators, Problem Solvers, and Customer Advocates. Uh, Karen and David, thank you guys both for joining me. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. Yep. Delighted well, to be with you. Thrilled to have you guys here. And um, David, I was attracted to your name only because I grew up in Philadelphia. There used to be a DJ named David Dye, uh, late night classic. <laughs> well, well, yeah. well, well acquainted with Mr. David Dye. It's, uh, it took me many, many years to get on the front page of my own name on SEO, uh, search engines uh, for, for that name. So, yeah, Are you sure you've heard of the guy and you've been cursing him ever since? <laughs> I, I got to tell you, one time I went into a thing and uh, the lady said, I love your show. I said, it's not me. She said, oh, no, there's lots of famous people here. You can be yourself. <laughs> I said, it's still not me. And I had to pull out my driver's license to prove it. That's really funny. Yeah, it's, just, it, it is, it's not a common name. But again, if you're a fan of his, I don't even know if the guy's still around. There. I mean, I used to listen to him when I was a kid, like in the 70s. So for all He retired uh, three years ago. Okay. Well, you know, you know more about him than the average person. Fair enough. Um, okay. So let's find out a little bit about yourselves and, and get up to um, the book and why you wrote it. So Karen, I'll start with you. Uh, give us a little background. Tell us uh, who you are. Yeah, so uh, David and I run a company called Let's Grow Leaders. Uh, we're all about practical tools and techniques for human-centered leaders. We've been doing this for a little over a decade. And uh, we are known for really just practical. You know, people, whether it's a keynote, they read our book, they take a training program, they're like, they say, you know what, that was really practical. Yeah. And at first we're like, huh, I'm not sure that we want to be the practical ones, but as it turns out, that is very helpful. <laughs> Uh, so, but before uh, founding Let's Grow Leaders, I was uh, at Verizon for 20 years and spent the first decade in human resources, leadership development, did a lot of merger integration work, and then led a variety of operations teams. So I led a 2,200 person sales team, a 10,000 person customer service organization. And, you know, the reason I start with that is I think that's where the practical comes from, I, you know, is, you know, so every tool that we build is grounded in something that we learned the hard way. Yeah, it's interesting also um, that you bring up the practical side of it, because you're right, there, there are a lot of authors and a lot of speakers that talk 30,000 foot overview or, you know, big picture or whatever. And um, this book gives you specific strategies, things for empowering employees, things for, you know, developing ethics and integrity, uh, increasing communication and feedback, but like specific practical ideas for implementing these things in an organization. And it was really, I, I appreciated that very much. So uh, it came across, so that's great. And David, how about you? Yeah, so my uh, background, I, I spent my career in human services and I started you know, frontline and held every leadership position there is to hold in that arena, uh, all the way up to CEO of the national organization and uh, really got into leadership development early i'm the oldest of six kids and and that really was the start for me of how do you bring a group of people together and how do we do something bigger than ourselves and so i started asking those questions pretty early in life and through my career was able to do a lot of investment in helping managers leaders grow and become the best version of themselves eventually started blogging because i couldn't get to everybody individually anymore and uh Karen as well started blogging. That's how we met uh, and realized that we really had alignment around our approach message, that practicality um, aspect of things and the human centered element of our leadership development. What is the name of your company again? 
Let's grow leaders. Let's grow leaders. And where are you guys based? Are you both in the same locale? I mean, you're here now, but are you in the same same? Yeah, so we're married. And uh, we live in Laurel, Maryland, which is uh, halfway between Baltimore and Washington, DC. Got it. And I just have to ask, so first of all, I'm in, I know Laurel well, I'm in Philadelphia. So my, okay. my daughter's University of Maryland grad. And uh, so you guys met through all of this. Is that what you were saying, David? And now you guys are married. Yes. That is, that awesome. is the case. Yes. Yeah. We met each other through our leadership writing and that's how we first got to know each other, then decided to collaborate on our first book. And uh, I was living in Denver at the time, uh, Karen was here and uh, wrote the book, it was coming out and we had got to be really good friends, uh, both also single and realized there was something more uh, there than just co-authors and that oh friendship. And so we were able to marry, merge our businesses and uh, here we are. That so if you're looking for uh, true love after 40, you know, write a book. <laughs> I was about to say, who needs Tinder or Hinge, you know? I mean, it's much better to just blog and write a book and you're going to find, and you know, what's really funny is that um, it, it kind of makes sense because, you know, depending on the topic that you specialize in, you're going to draw other people that are also have the same interests and who knows, sparks could flare as they did with you guys. So this book was written in 2020, um, you know, so I, it was actually when it was published in 2020. So I'm assuming you guys are writing this prior to the pandemic, right? Yeah. I mean, it was it was coming along. So Karen, I'll, I'll start with you. I mean, right now, as we're talking here in 2023, the whole topic of culture is just, it's huge. Uh, you know, obviously because of the whole work from home, remote working, people trying to figure out what makes sense. Um, I just, uh, you know, I, I just did a report recently uh, about how like even like, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, he was all about, you know, you know, oh, we're going to have everybody working from home in five years. And that's the kind of company we're going to be. And now just recently, he's like, uh, I made a mistake. We need to get people back in the office. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and the same thing over, you know, Mark Benioff at Salesforce saying, you know, the same thing. And culture is, is, is critical. This was before you wrote this book, though, before COVID. I'm kind of curious, like you, you must be just inundated with requests about this topic because you know, of what it happened to COVID. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because when we first, when, you know, when the pandemic hit, right as we were launching the book, we're like, all of our all of our keynotes, all the book sales went away. And I thought yeah. this is a disaster. But it, as it turns out, the book turned out to be very timely. You know, it was interesting because we were working with a variety of organizations all over the world and noticing a consistent pattern. When we would work with the most senior executives, we would hear things like, why don't more people speak up? Why am I the person that goes in and discovers the best practice when there somebody like three cubes over is doing something really good? Why aren't they talking to each other? Why aren't people sharing their ideas? Yeah. But then we would go into do training at the front line of those same organizations when we would hear things like, nobody really wants my ideas. The last time I spoke up, I got in trouble. No, nobody does anything with this anyway, so why bother? So that's what triggered the research because we were like, why is this happening? Because, you know, employees have ideas and most leaders really do want to hear them. And somehow there was a disconnect. So we partnered with the University of North Colorado to ask a couple of questions. When people were holding back ideas, what mm. kind of ideas were they holding back? And they weren't trivial. They were holding back ideas to improve the customer experience, the employee experience or productivity in a process. And then, you know, and then we, did the research say, well, why? And so, you know, we can get into that, but that's what really what sparked us to write this book because it, we saw a real business need. And, you know, of course it call, it starts with psychological safety and all of sure. those 
ground that everybody's talking about psychological safety, but how do you make that practical? You know, what, how do you create an environment where people really do feel like they know how and have the confidence and competence to share their ideas? Because that's what build cult, builds culture is when people feel like they are part of something bigger. Sure. The, um, and by the, the way, I'm just just to uh, interrupt both of you guys. So I, I know David, you're about to speak. I'm, my my plan is I'll go back and forth between you guys, um, asking questions. If there's anything that I ask that maybe isn't like your like you you feel like you know the other person could answer it better, feel free to deflect back, which is completely fine. But David, you were you were going to add to what Karen was saying. Go ahead. Just in terms of your question regarding the response in culture and the pandemic, I think that the critical thing and the reason that the book was so successful and that message has resonated so much is that that question is bigger than any of us. It's bigger than any one leader. Mm. And the more voices that we're able to draw into those conversations and get all the parallel processing of all of the brains in our companies and organizations and teams working together on those answers, the better solutions we find. And so creating a culture where that becomes the norm is an advantage. Right. Okay. Let's talk about psychological safety. I mean, you, you bring it up and um, Karen, it, it is not something that honestly in your world, it might seem like very common vernacular, but it, it's, it really wasn't to me. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. Do you want to take that? Sure. Uh, so when we're talking about psychological safety, it's that uh, feeling that I am not just allowed, but welcomed to speak the truth in a group setting. Mm -hmm. um, to speak my truth, to to put something forward that may not be popular or, or whatever else, but it's not just that I'm not going to be punished for it, it's that it's actually welcomed into that. So that's in the most concise way, when I'm experiencing psychological safety as a member of a team, it's that invitation for me to speak up and to, to put my truth in the conversation. How do you get there? Yeah, so first you eliminate all of what we'll call the toxic courage crushers. Right. Uh, so shame, blame, intimidation. If you have any of that junk, the Me Too stuff going on in your, your company, and then you go and say, hey, we really want you to speak up and share your ideas. So that's not safe. Right. So that's the that's the first thing. And then, you know, Dr. Amy Edmondson is really considered to be the pioneer of psychological safety. Uh, she's at Harvard. She wrote the foreword to our book. And, you know, she talks a lot about how all the research around psychological safety points to that people are more likely to hold on to a negative experience with speaking up than a positive one. And they're likely to discount the future benefits of speaking up and say and overweight the fear that they're feeling right now. And why that's so important is you know, for people who are going to pick up this book, I assume they're human centered leaders who really want to make this happen. So they're probably not leading in a way with shame, blame and intimidation. But it is statistically likely that someone on their team has had that experience in the past and they're holding on to it. So you have to more than say it's okay. You have to proactively make it easy for them to contribute their ideas because you're over, you have to overcome those headwinds that we know exist. What happens though, Karen, is that when you're in an organization, um, and and you know this and you've written about it, you know, there, there it's very easy for human beings to talk about other people, make fun of other people, uh, joke around. Sometimes it's malicious, sometimes it's just, you know, poking fun. But at the same time, it it still has an impact on somebody's willingness to offer information in the future and contribute, mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, and again, a lot of this is addressed in your book. And I'm I'm curious, Karen, like just for our listeners, for our viewers. You know, saying that we want to provide that psychologically safe environment is one thing, providing it is is another. So what what advice 
do you have that you've given in this book that um, would help a manager or a business owner, for example, um, provide that sort of safety? Yeah. Money? Yeah. So in the book, we go through seven steps. I'm not going to mm -hmm. go through all seven, but sure. the, to start with, it, it really starts with first navigating the narrative, which is your own comfort level of speaking up. Because if you go to your team and say, oh, it's totally cool. I really want to hear your ideas. And they're watching you and you are all about the politics and you're, you're, you know, you're do what we call diaper genie feedback, like, you know, sandwiching the things that uh, you really need to say in a way that you're really afraid to say them. They're watching all that. They're like, mm -mm, not safe. So that's the first step. Right. Then it's creating clarity. And this is clarity about two things. One being really clear that you want your idea, but this is the other one that was really interesting in, in the research. It's clarity about what a good idea would accomplish. So do your people have enough strategic context to, to give good ideas? So when we were working with the tools at the beginning, we were test them in a couple of ways. Once we would, one, we would go and say, okay, bring us any ideas you have to improve the business. Right. And the ideas we got were, okay right. but you know they were i mean they were so, either so big that they wouldn't be able to be doable like oh let's let's build a tiny house on this campus to solve our our, our housing shortage you know, at a university right like that's a good idea but it's not something that anybody in that room had agency to actually make happen right or we said let's give us ideas to accomplish this thing this very specific thing how do we be more product productive while we're working from home? How do we um, help the mental health of our people? Whatever it is that you have agency over. When we were more specific, that's when you got really doable ideas. So that's creating clarity. And then I wanna, it's- I wanna jump in just to, to add to that. And David, yeah. I don't know if you have anything to add, but the, you know, the, the concept there is when you have like a big problem, if you break it down into smaller challenges, and then you ask for input on how to deal with smaller challenges. It's much mm -hmm. more clarified and more direct. And I'm, you know, yeah. and, I'm, I, and, and I think that's what the point that you were making, you know, in your book, right? Yeah. So, you know, so even let's just take something really personal. Um, you could go to a, your team and say, do you have anything I could do to be a better leader? Right. Now, right. if you ask that, you're going to hear most Tough likely, one. oh, you're doing great. No right. worries. No problem. <laughs> but if you say, could you give me one way that I could make our meetings more effective? Right. Right. <laughs> right yeah. now, everybody's got an opinion. Yeah, it's that that aspect. It's just again, it's like human psychology. The more specific we can get, the more we're able to respond and wrap our head around it. And the other element is, you know, when you're talking about clarity, do people really know where you're going, what you're trying to achieve, how their work fits into that? All of those elements, the more knowledge that any team member has about those things, the more insight and effective ideas that they can contribute. So then the next step is to cultivate curiosity. Right. And, you know, when we would share these principles with leaders and managers, so often we would hear uh, almost a, a default already thing from people who with really good hearts are like, everybody on my team knows I have an open door. They can bring me anything they want. Everybody knows that. And they really sincerely believed it. And, and it was probably true, hmm. but there's a problem there. So first let's talk about the good part of an open door is from a uh, a safety valve and a, and a way to deal with harassment, any of those kinds of issues, yes, absolutely need that. But when you're talking about getting the innovations and the mm -hmm. problem, the solutions to problems and good ideas from your team, the problem with an open door is twofold. One, it still takes initiative for somebody to walk through it. Yep. They've got to stop doing the work they're doing. And even if it's a metaphorical open door, like, you know, logging into a Zoom meeting or scheduling sure. an appointment with you. Sure. 
uh, it still takes initiative. I got to stop what I'm doing and go and do that at the risk of it may or may not be received. What's going to happen? I, and most people in that situation just choose to keep doing their work. And the second problem- And also, by the way, it gets noticed by other workers. Like, oh, you know, what's she going in there, you know, to talk to the boss yeah. about? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, it's like teacher's pet kind of thing, you know? You got all those kinds of issues. And then the <laughs> second is that uh, people don't know sometimes the ideas they had. And, and I, I share this story in the book, but it, where this really cemented for me was one time I was working uh, with, uh, I, I was the COO working with our CEO and the CFO, and we were all trying to solve a, a significant problem that involved uh, insurance changes and, and a bunch of, it was a big problem. And we had spreadsheets all over the office and figuring out a solution. We finally, after a couple hours of that, we craft what we believe is a great solution. And I walked down the hall and I shared it kind of idly with uh, a, 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 an assistant mm -hmm. who said, oh, okay, yeah, I hear what you're saying interesting and she immediately says now as i'm thinking about it here's going to be the impact on this group and here's going to be the impact on this group and hmm. yeah okay and neither of those impacts were great and she wasn't being critical she was just thinking out loud about what was going to be the consequences and made me realize we were not done coming up with the solution and moreover she needed to be a part of that conversation but here is the crazy thing she had really keen insights to share she did not know that she had them to share until I asked. So as a leader, when we're talking about cultivating curiosity, mm. it's proactively asking for the ideas that we need and the solutions that we want. If we passively wait for them to walk through our door, it's not going to happen. And, pe and people have a natural, as Karen shared, all of those natural impediments, those headwinds to speaking up in the first place, because sometimes they don't know. There's the friction. There's all of those elements that, that we talked about. So to go out and proactively ask is critical. You know, just a, a quick story. I have a, a good friend and a client of mine, actually, and, and him and two partners run like it's like 150, 200 person company. And um, he uh, his office had to be like redecorated. So he took two weeks um, and moved himself to a cubicle in the customer service area you know, among all the customer service reps that were there. And um, he said it was absolutely uh, you know, a game changing thing because there he was not only watching them in action, but in a more relaxed atmosphere, uh, he was asking them what they were doing. They were telling him, they were asking him questions. Uh, he was offering advice. They were offering advice to him. You know, it was just, it was the opposite of a toxic behavior. You know, it was a more welcome and it, and it dovetails back into some of the points that you're making about being open um, with your people. And he's, he did this like five, six years ago. And he says now every year he makes, you know, takes one or two or three weeks out of the year and moves his base to the, to different areas of the company and just works from there. Cause he just feels like it's a, a better, even better than an open door policy. You know, I just awesome. you guys would, it's a cool story. There was a yeah, really it cool is. story. It is. It's a great example. So we, we share a number of different ways to cultivate curiosity, but that mm -hmm. is a, a good example Beautiful. of like a, a listening to or kind of a thing where you're going and, and being in the, and yeah. asking and talking to perfect. Yeah, he's, he's among the peeps and, uh, and, and there was a lot of feedback. Karen, what is a toxic leadership behavior? So we talk about three in the book. Oh, there are so many, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, where do I start? No, but you know, shame, shaming, blame, blaming, and intimidation, and intimidation. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have this vivid, vivid memory, which is, you know, the, uh, COO, gets in front of a group of very senior leaders, okay? So very well-paid executives, but puts a stack rank of their all of their results up. 
And so they got 20 people's results. Starts at the bottom of the list and passes the microphone around and says, explain why you're, explain to your peers why you're dragging down our results. What a dick. It, it, it was such... <laughs> Horrible. It was so bad. And, and yeah. everybody, I mean, you just could watch that. And yeah. I really, really think she thought that was the thing to do. Yeah. Because she's like, well, nobody wants to be that guy. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. But it, the downstream, right. So I'm in that room. Thank God I wasn't at the bottom of the list. But I, I mean, I'm just watching this and saying, thinking, how could you do this to, yeah. you know, the culture? And so, you know, that, I mean, that's an extreme example, but, you know, sarcasm, you know, it, like they're trying to be funny, but if you were in a position of power and you are truly sarcastic, you know, and, and, and the thing is sometimes the most toxic things are done to people who you actually have a really good relationship with. That's what we're finding. Like people who have, you know, well, I can do that because they're just, you know, I've known this guy forever and it's all cool, but everybody else is watching and going, oh my goodness. I." Or sometimes, you know, familiarity breeds contempt and you yeah. have an expectation of that person that you're very familiar with and have worked with a long time. And you might expect better. You might expect a better idea or that they would understand or have more wisdom or whatever it is. And sometimes when that doesn't happen, the contempt that can come out in that so it's really something, those are things you have to pay attention to, because if it takes courage for somebody just to show up, you're never going to get their best yeah. thinking. Yeah. They're spending all their energy just showing up. You know, it's funny, you guys mentioned about the uh, sarcasm or whatever, but um, you just, as, as you get higher and higher up the food chain in an organization, um, you know, you make comments and people read into those comments, you know, and even if you're just joking around, some people don't take it as a joke and other people are like, well, I know he said it was a joke, but if he said it, there might be something, you know, something in there. Yeah. You just have to be super careful, you, yeah. you know, when you're doing that stuff. Otherwise, it really does. You're right. It does become toxic. One of the other you you give a bunch of different mistakes, both of you guys for, you know, for for other sort of things that leaders screw up one of it. And, and I guess, you know, David, I'll turn to you on this one is, is chronic restructuring. And I was wondering if you can sort of expand on why you think, you know, why is that such a mistake? Well, I'm going to, Karen has more direct experience with okay. the, the chronic restructuring. So I'll, I'm going to give that one to her, but you create so much turmoil. People can't get their feet underneath them. Again, you're never going to get the best ideas because people are just busy surviving. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think the other thing is when you restructure your most important things, which is what, you know, we talk about change constantly. And so if I am going to, if my priorities are, if I think, well, why bother? Because the priorities are going to change again, or why invest in developing this team? Because as a team, because they're, I'm not going to be with them. And I have seen that, that that chronic restructuring really does create a level of uncertainty. And mm. yeah, maybe your organization could be better if it was just a little bit and get it right. But even it, you're better off sticking with it, unless it's a disaster than to keep changing your mind and keep changing it and get leaving everybody with that uncertainty. You know, the other mistake that I feel like we ought to get in sure. is, um, the response, not failure to respond to ideas. And I know that this is David, yeah. one of David's favorites. So. Yeah, that, that next that next step after you cultivate curiosity and, and all the different ways to ask and get ideas, the, to, the linchpin, the capstone in the arch of all of this is how you respond to the ideas that you do get, because you're going to get a range of them. Yeah, uh, You're going to get but one of our favorite examples, we're working with a large financial institution. They had a really robust way of collecting ideas from every level of the organization. 
And we talked to the executive in charge uh, about it. And he said, you know, what's interesting is that half of the ideas we get are things we're already doing. The person's just not aware. Hmm. We said, oh, okay, well, gosh, they must feel really heard then at the end of the day when, and he said, oh, no, that's not what our internal pulse surveys are showing. <laughs> we said, okay, well, how are you going back and telling people, hey, that idea was so good, it's already being done, and here's where you can learn more. And he said, oh, that would be a good idea, wouldn't it? Well, think about what's happening for that person who took the time yeah. to enter into the system, think their idea through, put it in the system in the way it needed to be, all of that, and then never hears boo about it again. Hmm. Well, what's going on in their head? Well, it's cementing all those things we talked about earlier. No one's, no one really wants my ideas. Nothing's going to change. Mm -hmm. They're stuck in their way of thinking. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to bother. Mm -hmm. But none of it's true. Right. None of that was true, but it's how, they're, how it's perceived. So how we respond is critical. So that's an example of the idea has already been implemented, but you also sure. have ideas that you can't use or that are half-baked. But what do you do? Or maybe, yeah, but maybe. What, you you do? what is your, what, what do you recommend that managers and leaders do to, you know, yeah. appropriately respond? We call it respond with regard. And th there are just three steps in it. And you, the same three steps, regardless of the kind of idea, gratitude, information, and an invitation. So gratitude is not gratitude for the idea. The idea may be a dumb idea. So you don't wanna say, hey, that's a great idea if it's not. Mm -hmm. What you wanna have gratitude for is the fact that they were thinking and contributing. Sure. So, hey, thank you so much for thinking about how we can be better. Sure. Then you add information depending on the idea. Maybe it's, hey, we can't do this because it would take us this way, we're going this way. Uh, maybe it's, hey, here's some more information that would be helpful as you're thinking this through. Uh, maybe it's, we're already doing that and here's where you can learn more. Thank you for contributing. Right. And then you end with that invitation to continue contributing. Right. Love to get your thoughts on, maybe it's that same idea with more information. Maybe it's a different idea. Maybe it's where you really need a good idea uh, and you, you're clarifying that. So you're coaching their thinking, but encouraging them for contributing in the first place and adding information to help them be as effective as they can. Do you recommend any form of communication? Do you, uh, do, do you tell your clients, uh, you know, it, it's always best to, you know, speak to them face to face or on the phone, as opposed to sending an email or maybe emails are, are satisfactory. <laughs> you know what I want to talk about, but so the, uh, so it, it depends on the idea, <laughs> right? For that, for when you're responding, but what we really believe about communication for the clarity element of things is that if something is critically important, if you want people to understand this is where you're headed strategically, if there's a behavior that you really want, if you're wanting to communicate that you really want people's ideas, you want to communicate it five times, five different ways. So maybe way one wow. is you bring everybody to an in-person in, in town hall meeting. Maybe way two is you follow up with an email. Then you follow up in the one-on-ones with each person and say, what are you picking up? Why do you think this is important? Then maybe you build a recognition program. Maybe you sing a little song, do a little skit, something that is capturing people's attention. Hmm. Because the very fact that people are like, wow, I have heard this recently. I have heard it again and again, repeated. I, there's some emotional appeal to this. I'm having to recall what I'm hearing in this check for, what we call check for understanding. That can really uh, make a difference. Yeah, a lot yeah, of it's like you spend time on Madison Avenue or something. Isn't that like, you know, like a person has to see an ad something like 12 Seven times, times. <laughs> Seven times right before it sinks yeah. in. Yeah. yeah. David, what yeah. were you going to say? Yeah, it's the, there's a lot of neuroscience in that, that uh, uh, as uh, if we want people internalizing those core concepts, those critical messages that are critical to our success, that's why five times, five different ways. Fascinating. And you know, it's funny. I mean, it's no different than sales, is it? I mean, if, if it's an idea, 
um, that you think is worth it, you are trying to sell it to your organization. You want people to, to buy in and understand it. And like any salesperson, good salesperson will tell you, you know, when they're reaching out to prospects, uh, they're emailing them, they're going on LinkedIn, they're calling them, they're maybe sending them a postcard that, you know, they're, they're trying to hit them from different directions, like your five different ways mm -hmm. uh, with that similar message. And I, I guess it's a similar you know, it's a similar type of approach, which makes a lot of sense. There's just a lot of noise, right? Yes. And and I'm I'm fascinated that, you know, if you go to our website, it is pretty obvious that we have a book called Courageous Cultures. People will Google, the, the, I'm in a deep into a sales presentation, and then I'll say, so have you, are you familiar with our book? You have a book? <laughs> oh, wait, wait, it's in my signature that you, I we have been communicated for with for the last three weeks, right? It's, you can't see it's on my cover of my LinkedIn, right? Don't even get me started. Karen, one of my pet peeves, <laughs> one of my pet peeves is uh I I can't regularly I will have email exchanges with people that I know or that have responded before that I've met and they'll call me Mark, not Gene. Like there's oh. right? it, it's like it'll be like, you know, I we would have had a thing and then the person will respond by hey, thanks a lot, Mark. You know, look forward to seeing you, something like that. You know, there is so in, in defense of the people that are might not be noticing, you know, <laughs> yep. I think there is some kind of a synapse going on in people's brains, depending on the type of information they're seeing. Yeah. We do see a lot of noise, we're processing it sometimes too yeah. fast. People see gene marks and their brain just skips to mark. Yeah. yeah. Which, if, you know, which I think embellishes your, 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 you know, what your approach, which is to, to hit them from different directions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about a work environment, the number of different conversations, priorities, meetings, all of the information just at work that's flying at people yeah. all the time Yeah. in order to get something really internalized and, and stick. It's, it takes time and repetition in different ways of communicating. Yep. So as you guys have probably figured out by now, like there's like, I read your entire book. We're going to cover like 10% of it uh, because we're, we're talking about some of the main concepts that are in it, but I, I, I do want to leave a lot for our listeners and our, and our viewers to go and, and, you know, see for themselves and, and buy the book. But having said that, um, I, I'll, I'll flip back to you, David. And again, feel free to toss this over to Karen if you think, but you do write about something called navigating the narrative which I found interesting. Are you, are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> Absolutely. So the, the navigating the narrative really is starting with you as a leader. So as Karen shared earlier uh, in our conversation, people are looking at you and right. are you modeling the courage and the contribution that you are asking of them? So right. getting, getting comfortable with your own relationship to courage, to speaking up, to psychological safety, um, all of those things where we see, uh, courageous culture efforts break down is frequently and why that gap exists. It's often at the level of the team leader or middle manager. So you've got maybe your senior executive who's saying, yes, we need everybody's idea. And we've seen this in organizations and, you know, and they're asking and they're doing, and then you get to that middle level manager who has all their own insecurities and they're worried about somebody else getting credit and they're not, uh, and so they're shutting down ideas or they're stealing credit for other people's ideas, which incidentally was one of the um, most fascinating parts of all that research that we did was 56% um, of people said, if I were to not share an idea, the reason is I would worry I'm not going to get credit for it. Right. That's astounding. And we'll share that in a, a keynote or in a workshop or, or something. And you can have watch the sea of heads go, mm-hmm, you know, it's like it's a shared experience. And so... Uh, that that navigating the narrative is all about uh, tapping into your own moments of courage. We all have them, 
And so where have you acted courageously in your own career and and centering yourself in that so that you are showing up in that way? And then the other piece of this that I think is important for leaders everywhere is vulnerability. Um, it There's a, a tool that we use in, in cultivating curiosity. We encourage leaders to ask what we call a courageous question. Right. And a courageous question is specific and it's vulnerable. Right. It's specific the way that Karen was talking about earlier, very narrow topic. I'm just asking for one thing, right? But it's vulnerable because it assumes improvement is possible. And when I'm asking a question as a leader, there is an implication that I don't have the answer, right? I might have an answer, but it's not the answer. And for many leaders that actually takes courage to put themselves in that way. And yet it's completely silly hubris to think you're going to have all the answers to everything. So being able to to tap into our own courage and get vulnerable that way is critical if we're going to be this kind of leader. You give a good example, and I would love you to just embellish a little bit here as you tell the story of Trader Joe's and you talk about vulnerability. I mean, particularly your story of waiting in line for so long and <laughs> some cashier that was like being like a, like an MC at a, at a, at a cabaret show, giving out free kombucha <laughs> and ice cream. And, um, and now Trader Joe's also uh, shares, you know, is, is very transparent. I'm curious if one of you guys want to talk a little bit about that, just because you're talking about asking those courageous questions. Yeah, you know, so you have to create an environment. So I don't think that would happen at the Giant or Har- or Safeway or Kroger, right? Because no. the, so basically, this person felt empowered to. There was a huge pending snowstorm, so it was like, and you know, you've been if anybody's been in a Trader Joe's, those are not big stores, right? No. So and they're always chaos. They're always it's, chaos. yeah, it's chaos, and right. and so you know, we are in this line that is like running down the aisle, past the frozen foods, sneaking into the thing, and people are just like, uh. yeah, and so this this. They have this microphone, which was cool, and it gets on there and he just starts making jokes and says, <laughs> okay, we're going to count off. We're going to go down one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, seven, you want a free ice cream, you know, and like, all right. And people started just laughing and yeah. having fun. And the amount of money that they had, they didn't give away. I mean, they weren't giving away filet mignon, right? Like, they, but it was just people started cooperating with one another. They, you know, it just lightened the mood. And I thought, what a courageous culture that that person felt empowered that they could do that. Right? They, they must have some parameters. So yep. what we teach in the book of, you know, if you really want to uh, empower people, you have to talk about hard lines. Like, here's the things you can't mess with. Trader Joe's could not do anything that was going to mess with their food safety. Yep. Right. Yep. So these are lines you can't cross. Here's the guidelines. And my guess is this manager had some level of discretion that said you can give away up to X amount of product without getting in trouble. And then your lines, how would you want to do that? You're welcome to create our guidelines or create a create a fun atmosphere where people want to come to shop, probably. And, yeah. you know, and, and with that, that's where you get good ideas. You do. And, and, um, and people love it. And particularly, I, I think younger employees, although I don't want to, you know, I don't want to segregate by age because I'm sure older employees do as well, but when they get the chance to be their own person and show their creativity, I mean, I haven't, I fly a lot and I haven't really seen, there used to be back in the day, like you would go like on a Southwest flight and like the, 
you know, the flight attendant would get on the speaker and like do a rap or sing a song or do something, you know, I haven't seen that in a while. Like, I don't know if they're starting to really knuckle down on that kind of stuff. And people used to love that yeah. stuff. And then you also read and see sometimes there's the occasional social media person. I forget what brand it was where some social media person for the brand just like went off, you know, being really funny and silly, you know, about one of their competitors. Yeah. And I, listen, I mean, like you said, I mean, the, 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 the guy in Trader Joe's, I mean, there were, people were taking a risk by doing that way. They could say the wrong thing, and yeah. particularly in this day and age, they could upset somebody, you know, or whatever. But I, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's worth to have a courageous culture. I think you have to empower your employees, give, give them some, you know, some leeway to do that kind of stuff. It's yeah. I think the upsides are better. And look what happened, right? So they spent a little bit of money. Yep. Now they are written up in this book yep. that people are reading all over the world, for, yep. which is free positive marketing, you know? Yep. And so I think that's that part of creating a courageous culture is, is to say, you know, people might come up with an idea and we're willing, as long as we give them the guidelines. I think where it could go south is if you don't give people the guidelines. Right. So, you know, we, we were working with one company that actually called us in to help them rein it in a little bit. Right. So they had um, been so, um, so open, like do whatever you need to do to serve our clients that they were running into compliance issues, like serious compliance issues. Sure. And so they're like, come help us create clarity about where you, you know, how, when you can innovate, because they didn't want to shut it all down, but they needed to rein it back in. And so I think that's really where you've got to make sure that people understand the why behind your policies and that. Um, it, it's interesting. We also we have a client right now who is um, in the food food business, and um, they are doing an incredible job because so many things aren't you can't do like food safety, mm -hmm. infant formula, right? You can't innovate in some of this stuff at all. Yeah, but they still want people's ideas so that they're really clear. Like here are the areas that we're not we're not messing with this. You have no leeway whatsoever to do anything with this. But here is how we want where we want ideas and really reinforcing what appropriate risk taking looks like and that comes to clarity it's all part of the clarity bit because if you know when you don't do that people will assume it's all one way and so right. to really draw it out and say this yes this no and here you do you you know that that's why that's mm -hmm. so critical and also i i think it's also important to say that people are going to make mistakes anyway so you are still taking even when you give people guidelines i mean 100 yeah. you know yeah. so you have to be flexible and you seem like if you're gonna you're, you're you're taking a risk because the the reward should should outweigh the risk but you know th there could be a little bit of cost and as a, as a manager or an owner or a leader you have to accept that you know and yeah. and not freak out when somebody does say or do the wrong thing it's just going to happen and then you guys go ahead i'm sorry go ahead David. i was gonna say gene if i take that one step further it's it's to not freak out as a good neutral <laughs> but then to embrace and reward risk is even better yes uh and so if somebody tries something and it doesn't work but they were trying for the right reasons and in the right framework good job that one didn't work what can we learn from that and let's learn from that and apply it the next time around so that we're still celebrating the attempt and the effort uh and not just going well that didn't work <laughs> you know uh there's that kind of both and in there i agree i agree all right so you guys have been amazing this book is great um i only have a few minutes left because you've been very generous with your time so and again for those of you guys listening and watching this uh you know again uh, the book and we'll, we'll, we'll go through where to get it and all of that in a minute. But one, one thing I did want to sort of like finish with, and I don't know which one of you guys want to take this is you do write a lot about building an infrastructure for courage. I mean, in, in the end, that's what it's 
all about. And you give you know, a bunch of steps. You recruit and you hire you. Uh, you new additions experience the company as they arrive. I'm like reading out from my notes. You know, you mm-hmm. compensate people well. You you give people performance feedback. I actually want to hone in on the recruiting and the hiring because mm-hmm. it is it's my biggest. I, I run a ten person company. Um, you know, we have you know six seven hundred clients, uh, small and mid sized businesses. And our besides there being a serious labor shortage. We all suck at recruiting and hiring. You know, I mean, we go through the resumes and the interviews. I'm 58 years old. I don't, I still don't know what I'm doing. And in the end, when like it comes time to like hire somebody, it's always like a leap of faith, you know, give us, give us some advice. And I don't know which one of you guys want to take this for recruiting people, hiring people that you think will contribute to your infrastructure for courage. What do you look for? So I would really, and it's interesting because actually a couple of our clients have have me deeply involved in this with yeah. them. Uh, so so Nestle is one of our our, our big clients, and uh, they are doing an incredible job of building what I will call a well they'll, what they call a care and dare culture. We call it a courageous culture, but they read the book and they said, "Oh, we're going to build a care and dare culture. Can you help us with the daring part?" Okay, right. And uh, so what we did, uh, the CHRO of, uh, uh, and I went and we looked at all of their interview questions and said, are these questions really tapping into the experiences of, so if risk-taking is one of their behaviors they're trying to get, tell me about a time that you took a risk or something didn't work. What happened? What was the result? What did you do? Um, If you are looking for someone to be innovative, tell me about a time that you had the idea. And, and so that's one way is to really restructure the interview questions. I got to interrupt you. And I'm so, I'm sorry, Karen, I apologize for doing that. You know, those are great, great questions to ask. And I'm asking this as a business owner myself, you know, that is the kind of question before I have an interview, like the day before an interview, I would love to submit that question to the job candidate, you know, and say, when you come mm-hmm. in for the interview tomorrow, I'm going to be asking you this question or that question, mm. because it's such a, rather than put somebody on the spot and they have to think and scramble, you know, whatever, I almost feel like, wouldn't it help to, to give this person a little bit of time to think about their response to, to maybe, you know, remember a specific situation, give it some thoughts so that when they do, when we do meet, they can talk about it because I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in putting somebody on the spot. I'm interested right. in what their answer is, you know? Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I think that it depends on the, on the position, Yeah. you know, if you need somebody who can really be articulate and think on their feet and it's going to be representing you on the, then I would not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but if you are looking for an analytic, uh, you know, uh, some role that it, you're an introvert is the perfect personality for this, then absolutely. I think that's a really good yeah. idea. Fair enough. No. Fair enough. I yeah, interrupt. I apologize. You, no, you, it's and- it's good. So so the and the other thing that I'm working on right now with one of our clients is they are having me. So they're in a they're in executive search now for a couple se- really senior roles, and they're actually having me help with the interview process. So it gets screened by the board. It gets screened by the CEO, and then it comes to me. And I, and I'm all, I don't, you know, I don't know all the technical, it's a very technical company. I'm not asking the technical questions. I'm seeing if they are really going to, um, if they have experience transforming culture, do they have a, can they build an infrastructure for courage? What is, what is the experience been, you know, and because at a senior level, it's not just you, you, it's not just your own leadership. It's how you're building that out for your whole organization. And it's been fascinating to me 
to it really does differentiate the candidates, quite frankly. And I think that what I really like about that is that they recognize the criticality of that for culture because they've been spending a lot of time and energy to build this culture. And they know if they bring the wrong person in, it could take them backwards. Yes. Right. And so to to prioritize that, you know, if you're looking not just for the technical skills and not just for the leadership skills, but do you have somebody who can actually speak to what it takes to transform a culture? Great answer. It is a, and I have to tell you, I mean, to me, that is a topic of your next book is is recruiting and hiring and evaluating because building your team and your infrastructure is to me is one of the biggest issues that my clients and myself, you know, that we're that we're facing. David, do you have anything to add to that? You know, what I was thinking about on the question of interviews and, and questions in advance and things, and uh, I agree, it depends on the role and it depends on the question. Uh, I'm a huge fan of those behavior-based interview questions and in the moment for the critical ones, because okay. if it's a critical, if it is this topic that you're talking about is critical to their job success and being a, a functioning part of their team or whatever it is, then you want to bump into them and that's what pops out. So right. if I'm hiring somebody to be incredibly empathic in tough customer situations, I want to be able to ask about a time they had a difficult encounter with a customer, what happened, tell me about that. And and that love for the customer just breathes out of them. Sure. Um, sure. And so those kinds of, some of the others I might in advance, but in, in the moment when we're trying to find out People can't make up and and make their way out of those kinds of because you're asking about a real scenario, a real life thing. So the value in that, I think, is is very much there for those kind of questions. And then if you are a candidate, Google the company, look for their <laughs> values and be prepared to speak to those values and tell them about a time that you lived that value. I am always I'm always shocked at how people aren't prepared to answer that question. It's funny that you say that too, because I have not been on a job interview in like 25 years. Uh, wow. If I was going to go on a job interview, not only would I be doing exactly that, Karen, but I would probably have three or four stories in my head. Um, I, I've learned one thing from writing so many years is that you can pretty much conform and mold a story to answer any question. That's Lots of different, yeah. <laughs> you know? So um, if you have a couple of good stories where you really, you know, sort of shined in the past, Mm -hmm. um, and can provide some details of that and then just be ready to sort of be flexible with the story a little bit to make it, yeah. you know, you know, push it. I, I think it would help a candidate a lot. Yeah, agreed. I have been speaking with Karen Hurt and David Dye. They are the authors of Courageous Cultures, How to Build Teams of Micro-Innovators, Problem Solvers, and Customer Advocates. Uh, Karen, David, where do we reach you guys? Give us your website and your social handles so we have that yeah, on record so on the screen. Our website is Let's Grow Leaders. And if you go there and you go to books, there's also a tab, courageouscultures.book.com, where you can get free uh, sample chapters, the executive strategy guide, if you want to read it along as an executive team, you can get access to the idea incubator guide, a lot of additional tools that were, are nice companions if you're reading the book uh, to, to begin to implement it. And as you're reading the book too, at the end of each chapter, it tells you something specific to do. Okay. Uh, so it's a, really is designed to be a step-by-step uh, Karen Hurt with an I uh, on LinkedIn, as we, we've all talked about your name, David Dye. With a Y. <laughs> with a Y this time, yes. right? That's fine. Well, guys, thank you very much. It was a great conversation. The book is excellent. Highly recommend it to all of our listeners and to our viewers. I want to wish you best of success. I am guessing this will not be your last book. So when the next one comes out, I'm sure we will talk again. Fair enough. 
Well, we I have one that's due to the publisher in June, so I will take you up on that. <laughs> Why does that not surprise me? You've got a lot to write about on this topic, so I'm, uh, I'm glad to hear it. Everybody, thanks for watching and listening. You've been watching and listening Biz Books. My name is Gene Marks. Uh, we will be back in just two weeks with another interview of uh, you know, a, a very good, experienced, and intelligent author of a great business book, uh, just like Courageous Cultures. I want to appreciate that you have spent the time with us, and thank you for watching and listening. We will see you again soon. Take care.